So we're in John's Gospel, as you know. If you're visiting, welcome. Um, John chapter 7, the last verse, is part of our text today. And then the first 11, actually the first 12 verses of chapter 8, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through John's Gospel. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be put or such should be stoned, excuse me. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as as though he did not hear. And and Lord, we pray that as we look at these verses and the verses that follow, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us insight. Lord, we as believers, as those who believe your word, we always approach, or at least we should always approach your word, believing that there is a life application for us. And so we pray, Father, please teach us from your word this morning, from this very familiar portion of scripture. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is a really familiar portion of scripture, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's one that Um, In fact, if I think back into my childhood, even though we weren't really, we weren't raised in a Christian home per se, but we were raised in a church-going home, and I remember this account. I remember the woman caught in adultery. I remember this particular story as a a young child, and I think it's one that that most people know, most people are familiar with. I, I don't know if you're aware of the fact that there's controversy around this text, the controversy is, is based on chapter 7, verse 53, down to chapter 8, verse 11. And the controversy is, is that many of the, or the majority, really, of the Greek manuscripts omit this section. I was mentioning at the uh, first service, I remember I used to use uh, King James, or I'm sorry, um, NIV, uh, the, kind of the early edition of NIV. And uh, in that edition of the Bible, they just completely took this section out. Uh, After the second service, someone came up to me, and they had an NIV Bible in their hand. And I said, is it in there? And she said, yeah, it's in there. But, you know, there's notes saying, you know, what I'm sharing with you now. So I'm glad that they left it in there. You you never want people to be taking things out of of the, the, the scripture. But we know that the majority of the Greek manuscripts omit this section. Some of the manuscripts insert these verses in uh, after Luke chapter 21, verse 38. So some of them insert them there. A few of the manuscripts have these verses after John chapter 21 and verse 24. There's 25 verses in that last chapter. So it's right before... We read the last verse of John's gospel, you know, that there were many other things that Jesus did. And so some insert it there, some of the manuscripts. And um, 
one of the manuscripts puts these verses uh, right after John chapter 7, verse 36. Remember, we've been looking at um, that particular text. It was right before Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. But we know this. We know that in over 900 of the manuscripts of John's gospel account, it is found. So I think it's safe to say that the text belongs. We're just not sure where it belongs. Or not we, but the scholars in it really know where it belonged. And so they tried to insert it in different locations. From what I've read and what I've studied, it's believed that, that John was the author. He was the one who recorded these things, that this obviously was a, a real event that took place. But I just wanted to give you the background on it because sometimes you know you, you find things and they become a, a stumbling block for people. So here it is, this very familiar portion of scripture. I think it's worth noting that in verse 53 of chapter 7, it says, everyone went to his own house. And it's kind of sad that no one invited Jesus home with them because we see that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, we know that Jesus would do this. In fact, we see this in John's gospel quite often. Jesus, after he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, John chapter 12, what did he do? He almost immediately went out to the Mount of Olives. And so he would kind of go out of the city. He would go to a, a location there on the Mount of Olives. Most likely, though it doesn't say it, most likely he went to Gethsemane. You know, if you go to Israel today, you'll go to the garden, you'll go, there's a church there, it's at the, the, the kind of the, the foot of uh, the, in the Kidron Valley, the foot of the Mount of Olives, and they'll say this is the location where Gethsemane was, you know, and I, I, they, there used to be years ago uh, when you would go to Israel, we would just kind of go through that location just so we could see it. Some of the um, olive trees date back 2,000 years, so that was interesting. But we would go kind of up the road a little bit further, and there was a garden. It wasn't a tourist attraction at all. It was just a, a garden. It had olive trees there. And we would usually go into that location, and we would have a, a Bible study there concerning... Gethsemane. And, and we would do that, uh, and, and many times it would be stated that this is more like what Jesus and his disciples would have experienced, you know. Uh, not with all the structures and the, the, you know, groomed garden and everything, that it would have been more like this. So perhaps Jesus went out to Gethsemane, maybe he spent the night in prayer again, it doesn't say. All it says is that in the morning, early in the morning, he returns back to the temple and he sits down, and people began to gather around him. I, I love this picture. Wherever Jesus was, there was always people gathering to him. I mean, why wouldn't they? You know, uh, by this time in Jesus' ministry, uh, he was becoming very well known. People were drawn to him. Even the critics, no doubt, would want to come, sit, and listen, and watch to see what he would say and do. Then we see from the text that we've read thus far that his teaching was interrupted. His teaching was interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees. His, 
his teaching was interrupted by these men that were bent on killing him or seeing him put to death. Maybe they didn't want to personally kill him, but they wanted to eliminate him. So that's important when you consider the whole of the text. So they interrupt Jesus' teaching. They come to Jesus. They have a woman and they have a question. The woman, they say, was caught in adultery in the very act. The question they had was this. Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? So this is what the law says, but we're curious. What do you say? Now, guys, the key verse in our text today, in my opinion, and I think you would probably agree, is verse 6. Because verse 6 gives us kind of the backstory. Verse, verse 6 tells us, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. The word testing, it means to scrutinize, entice, to discipline. That was their goal. They wanted to uh, test him so that they might accuse him. That word in the Greek, it literally means to charge with an offense. And so that was the motive behind what they were doing. So they say, we caught this woman, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, that would be embarrassing. If it was true, that would be extremely embarrassing. Um, but if it was true, it, it also creates some questions because we know that it takes two to tango, you know. Uh, the woman could not be committing adultery by herself. There had to have been a man, but no man is mentioned in the text at all. No man is brought before Jesus. It's not two of them that are cast down in the midst of them. It's one. It's the woman. So that's a question that we should consider. And of course, any Bible student has considered that question many, many, many times over the centuries. The other question that I have, the thing that comes to mind, is that these were the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the men who upheld the law of God. If they truly found this woman and the man, again, the man's not mentioned, in the very act of committing adultery, why did they bring her to Jesus? Why did they not bring her, them, to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, remember, is a Jewish court, that 70-member court. They were the authorities. They were the ones who would have the authority to say, stone her. So why bring her to Jesus? Because Jesus, guys, had no official, and you understand what I mean by that. Jesus has all authority because he's God. But Jesus had no official authority to say one way or the other. So I think it's worth noting that they don't go to the Sanhedrin. They don't go before their, their peers and say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. But instead, they bring her to Jesus, and they want Jesus' opinion. <laughs> what do you say? What do you say? And again, pointing out the obvious, verse 6 tells us why they did this. Because they wanted to charge him. They wanted to find some fault so that they might accuse him. I think that it's safe to say that what they were attempting to do is that they were attempting not only to accuse him of, of breaking the law 
And we're going to, I'll touch on that in a, in a moment, on two accounts, breaking the law on two accounts. But I think that first and foremost, they probably wanted to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. You know, if you, if you don't have a following, then, and, and your goal is to have a following, you know, and then to have disciples and these types of things. Though Jesus never indicated that that was his purpose. Jesus knew what his purpose was. His purpose was to come and to die for the sins of the world and to be resurrected on the third day and ascend to heaven and never live to make intercession for us. The disciples really would be us and others that would come later, you know. It was important that he had the 12 so that they could, they who heard the teachings firsthand could, could remember the teachings inspired by the Holy Spirit, record these things <clears throat> for further generations. But, but Jesus' purpose really at his first coming, his first advent, was to die for the sins of the world. Remember, he is, as John tells us, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they... They try to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. You say, well, how would, how would this discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people? Well, if Jesus would have said, let her go, then he would have been seen by the people as one who really doesn't take the Mosaic law seriously. He doesn't uphold it. He doesn't really care much about it. Remember that the religious leaders kept accusing him of being a lawbreaker. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Remember, that was their, their, their mantra. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He breaks the law. He breaks the law. And it's always a Sabbath issue. And so this would just confirm it. See, he doesn't keep the law. He doesn't care about the law. Now, if he would to say, stone her, then, well, this would discredit him in the eyes of the people because then he would be breaking the law of Rome. Guys, the Jews at that particular time had lost their right because they weren't really a sovereign nation at that time. They were occupied by Rome. They had lost their right to execute people for religious or, you know, Mosaic law on that basis. That was taken away from them. You say, well, where do you get that? In, in John chapter 18, remember when uh, Jesus was brought before Pilate and let's see here. In verse 31, chapter 18, verse 31, again, the religious leaders, you know, they're trying to get this thing done. And it says, uh, verse 31, Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. He would not die by stoning. He would die by crucifixion. Why? Because the Jews had no right to take his life. If they did, they would have stoned him to death. Rome, they're the only ones that had the right to crucify. And they, of course, were the ones who did crucify him. So you look at this whole thing, you know, that, that's going on. This was a setup. They probably thought, I could almost imagine these 
guys whispering to each other, we've got him now, you know. Oh, man, he stepped right into our trap. Look at verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Jesus ignores them as if he did not hear them. And he's writing on the ground with his finger. Now, of course, how many sermons have you heard about Jesus writing in the dirt? And what did Jesus write? And this was the thing. Oh, if we could only figure out what Jesus wrote in the ground, this was the deal. I wonder, initially, when I look at this, I wonder if Jesus used the same finger he used when he wrote on the tablets of stone to record the law that was in question. Remember the law? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 31.18, And when he, God, had made an end of speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. You say, well, that's the finger of God. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is God. <laughs> Guys, can I remind you, this is why we, we need to be careful students of the Bible. God is spirit. That's what the Bible says. God is spirit. The manifestation of God, you know, Moses, what did he see? He, he saw a, a bush that was being burnt, it was on fire, but it was not being consumed. There was, if you will, the presence of God. This was the manifestation that he knew something special was happening here as God spoke to him. Um, Moses, later on, I, I want to see your face, Lord. Well, you can't see my face and live, you know. But I'll tell you what, you, you go into the cleft of the rock, I'll lay my hand over you, I'll walk by, and I will, I will proclaim my name to you. And God passes by, and Moses looks, and he sees, you know, the Shekinah glory, the afterburners of God, you know, and his face is shining, you know. Jesus is a manifestation of God who is spirit. He is the incarnation. He is the manifestation. Well, anyway, what did Jesus write? And there's been so many suggestions. Some have suggested, you've all heard this one, that Jesus was writing uh, the sins of each of the men who brought this woman. You know, here's uh, Joseph, and he did this, and so he's writing it. So now Joseph is getting convicted because he's seen his sins written down in the dirt there. And he's, yeah, that must have been it. That must have been it. Others have suggested that, that Jesus wrote Exodus 23, 1. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked and be an unrighteous witness. Maybe he wrote that. Others suggest maybe, maybe Jesus wrote Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living God. I think maybe Jesus wrote something like, I know what you guys are up to, you know. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that we don't know, and it's fruitless to even speculate because um, we don't know 
and we'll never know. And I'll come back to this in a moment. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus, left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. What was happening? What was Jesus writing? You know, I was thinking as I was reading this the other day, the text, I was thinking of how non-believers, so those who have not really placed their faith in the Lord, they have their favorite Bible verses. Did you know that, non-believers? They have their favorite verses. One of their favorite verses, the favorite verse of a non-believer, and it's not just a favorite verse of a non-believer. Uh, this is a favorite verse of, of, of many believers as well. And sadly, in many cases, the non-believer and the believer use it in the same way. And that favorite verse would have to be Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. You guys know what it is. Judge not, lest you be judged. They like that one. Judge not, lest you be judged. Have you ever said that to somebody? Hey, you know what the Bible says. Someone's calling you out, you know. <laughs> judge not, lest you be judged. And I think probably, you know, up there, maybe not second, but, but surely up there, as far as favorite verses among non-believers and believers, is this one, because we hear them quoted quite often. It's he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And of course, both of these scriptures, these verses, are used to condone sin. But do those verses condone sin? See, the thinking is, listen, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, you've sinned, and she's sinned. So it doesn't matter, it's a wash. It's kind of like <laughs> many classrooms today. Everything's kind of graded on a curve, you know. And uh, nobody benefits from it. You know, the, the lowest possible standard, we'll start there and we'll just kind of, you know, move our way <laughs> down from there. Jesus was not condoning sin when he said, judge not lest you be judged. You remember the context, guys? It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. Jesus would be speaking out of both sides of his mouth if that's what he meant. Judge not lest you be judged. Because just a few verses down, he tells us to judge. So that doesn't make sense. 
But of course, as students of the Bible, we know that the word judge that he used there, it means condemn. You don't have the right to condemn somebody. You don't have that authority. You don't know all the details. You don't know what's truly in the heart. But as far as judging, making judgments, we're called to make judgments. All the time, throughout the scriptures, there are exhortations to make judgment, especially for those of us living in this generation, I believe the last generation of the church, we're to make judgments because the days are, are filled with deception. Deception from pulpits, deceptions from, from you know, Christian this and Christian that. Deception, Jesus told us to beware of deception. So we're to make judgments. We make judgments all the time. He says, let him throw a stone at her first. You know, I look at this, and, I, and now he says, he who is without sin. So obviously, that, that's a factor. You have to take that into consideration. But I almost wonder, when you look at this, they say, Moses in the law said. So there's the authority. Moses in the law said, she should die. And Jesus seems to say, yeah. And Moses in the law says, and then he says, let him throw the first stone. You're saying, I'm not following. Well, let me give this verse to you, these two verses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. Whoever is deserving of death, now of course this is not applying to Christians. This applies to Israel, you know, the old covenant. But Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's important. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now listen to the rest of it. It says, the hands of the witnesses. So there has to be two or three. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him or her in this case to put him or her to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So do you get the picture there? See, the same one, Moses, the same law, there's only one law, by the way. This, you know, needs to remind us that the law is not 10. <laughs> the law is from Genesis, you know, the first five books of the Bible. The law is, what is it, 600 and uh, 16, I think, or 18, uh, the law. The law, it's not just the, the 10 things that we, you know, see in many churches and, and uh, you know, used to see in court, uh, courthouses and, and things like that, but it's much more. Jesus is saying, listen, you caught her. You're the witnesses. You're the eyewitnesses. You're the ones that you, you said you saw her. You caught her in the very act. So <laughs> he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone of execution. That's what Moses says. And as we see in our text, they, verse 9, look what it says, and those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. Now, you need to note something here in this verse. Stick with me. I know it's kind of warm and stuffy in here. But uh, I'm almost done, believe it or not. I know, the regulars say, we don't believe you. You lie. Anyway. 
I kept referring to, I kept asking the question kind of as a setup. What was Jesus writing? What was Jesus writing in the dirt? Because see, our attention is drawn to Jesus writing. And we think that whatever he wrote in the dirt was the reason that they laughed. But that's not what the text tells us at all. It says when they heard it. It wasn't what they saw written in the dirt. It's what they heard. When they heard it, being convicted by their conscience. First of all, you know, I want to give credit uh, here to these religious leaders, these hypocrites, these brood of vipers. <laughs> I mean, Jesus never had anything nice to say to them. But we do have to, we do have to acknowledge the fact that, that thankfully, they were convicted enough within their heart that they did not carry out the task, you know. They did not, just for principle, you know, we're going to pick up stones and stone her, you know. We're caught in our trap, you know. But they walked off. And I think it's worth noting that they walked off. They began with the oldest to the last. And I, I think there's something really interesting here. I, I, you know, I would like to believe, though I know it's not always true, but I'd like to believe that the longer we live with ourselves, <laughs> the more aware we are of ourselves. The young person might say, I know that I would, would have said something like this as a young believer, a Pharisee in the making. We gotta dot the T, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's, and we need to make sure everything and and almost as if I've got a full understanding of all things, and I'm gonna make the final judgment, and and uh, you know, I know how it should go down, and oh, you're just not serious about the Word of God and that type of thing, and you kind of live in this weird mindset, and the mindset is this: I've never done that. So therefore, though we wouldn't say it out loud because it would be embarrassing, I've never done that, so therefore, I'm better than you are. I've never committed adultery. See, this is why the Word of God, when you read the Word of God, when you study the Word of God, don't you think it's interesting, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus begins with that. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. and the pro I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. You've heard that it was said to those of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yes, yes, never done it. <laughs> but I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your, what? Look, come on, Jesus. You gotta be kidding. Now, who is Jesus? He is the law giver. He gave it. He knew what he meant when he gave it. <laughs> He's now giving the interpretation or the understanding of how he views the law. It's not just the doing of the thing, but it's, it's even the attitude of the heart. And I think of these men, you know, I, I would like to believe that these older guys, these older scribes and Pharisees, they're there 
He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they're standing there and they're looking, they're convicting their heart. Maybe they're thinking to themselves, you know, we set this whole thing up. Yeah, she was committing adultery, but she was committing adultery with, with one of ours. We set this whole thing up. Maybe it was something like that. Or we didn't really catch her in the very act. Whatever it was. I mean, there's so many speculations. We, we, we don't even know really what was really happening here. But I, I, here we're told that the oldest, from the oldest to the last, from the oldest, the oldest, thinking, oh, man. See, it's not, that, it's not that grading on a curve. It's not that, well, I've done bad things in my life, so it doesn't matter. No, it's this conviction that who am I to, <laughs> to cast the final judgment upon this woman? This whole thing was a setup to get him. And they went their way. I, I think that, you know, guys, as we grow in the Lord, I would, I would hope that as Older people, you know, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for four decades, five decades. You know, that's the first service, the older folks. But um, I, I would like to believe, I, I would hope that there is a mellowing, there is a humility that's worked into our lives. And there's this, you know, I mean, genuine, thank you, Lord. Man, but for the grace of God, there go I. You know, when we drive down the streets of our little city, Oak Harbor, and we see them, you know, we know them, we know them because we see them all the time. Though there are new folks that come in from time to time, we have our homeless folks, and there they are, and and, and sometimes they seem subdued and just kind of, you know, trudging down the sidewalk. But other times we see them and we say, oh, these people are troubled, you know. They're talking to themselves. Someone, you know, for them, there's someone there. There might be a group of people there with them. They're arguing. They're in an argument. They're out there yelling. They're screaming at the top of their... I went to the store last night with Tracy. And I'm sitting in the parking lot of uh, the stores that she was going into, uh, kind of working on my, <laughs> my study for today. And as I'm sitting there in the, in the truck, just waiting in the parking lot, I hear someone screaming over here, and so my attention's drawn up, and here's someone walking down the street, just, ah, da, da, da. it's like, oh, man. And then I hear yelling back over here. And so I look in my rearview mirror and there's someone back there just ranting and raving. And, and it, it just is so sad, isn't it? Well, we're believers. Our minds are being transformed by the word of God. We should think differently than we would if we weren't believers. As non-believers, we might be quick to say, you know, the police really need to step it up and get this riffraff off the street. For the believer, maybe our first reaction would be, thank you, Lord, that that's not me. You know, it depends on what kind of background. Some of you, you came to faith in Christ. You know, you grew up, you lived a good life, you know, 
humanly speaking, you know, you come to faith in Christ and, and it was just kind of a smooth transition or whatever. Others of us, you know, we lived kind of a rocky life. We lived out in the world. We're doing things that we're ashamed of now. In fact, if, if someone was to come and write a book about our past, you know, our BC days, we'd probably be embarrassed and ashamed that anyone would know some of those things. And I think maybe those of us that have come from that kind of background, we think to ourselves, oh, man, that could have been me. That could have been me. I could have given myself, you know, I was already in that life, to the drugs or to this or to that, and now you've got the mental illness on top of it, and you've got the madness and the screaming and the yelling, and, and no one wants to be around you, and the family, you know, they've tried, and they've been there, and they've given you chance after chance after chance, and now you've crossed the line, and there you are on your own. I would hope that as Christians, you know, as we're, in the Word of God, reading the Word of God, we realize it's not just the action, but it's the attitude of the heart. You know, the attitude of the heart is something that we could hide. Tracy and I have been married for um, going on 46 years, and I can hide the attitude of my heart to the one who's closest to me. She doesn't know what I have concealed in my heart, but you know, I can't hide my heart from him. He knows it. I think it's interesting, the Apostle Paul, you know, when he was writing, I think it was to the Romans, wasn't it? And, and he talks about the sin of coveting. Now, the law says, thou shalt not covet. And Paul says, I wouldn't even have known what coveting was. I wouldn't even, even have known that coveting was a sin if the law had not sin, said, thou shalt not covet. His point was that the law has become a schoolmaster to us so that we might understand what sin is. And, and I think it's beautiful that he used that example because coveting is so natural. I mean, when you're coveting, do you really feel like you're sinning? Oh, I wish we had that house. Oh, man. Oh, gosh, I wish, oh, look at that. Oh, I wish I had. But it is. In fact, when you consider sin in general, sin in general is just wanting what you don't have. Sin is, is wanting what God says no to. And you say, no, I want it to be a yes. That's what sin is. Well, anyway. Thankfully, they were convicted and they went their way. Verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. How beautiful. It, it, we see this in John chapter 1, verse 4, John chapter 9, verse 5, John chapter 12, verse 35. This is the seventh I am statement of Jesus recorded by John in John's gospel account. Remember, there's seven I am statements, seven signs of Jesus in John's gospel account. I want you to remember the context of maybe not specifically the verses that we just looked at, but, but verse 12, the context, the Feast of Tabernacle. The Feast of Tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacle. It was the Feast of Tabernacle when Jesus said, 
On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, looking back at God's faithfulness, his guidance, his deliverance, his protection over that generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they would not believe God because of their rebellion. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the features, one of the events of the Feast of Tabernacles was the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple took place in the women's court of the temple area. So you had different courts in the, in the temple. Many of you are probably aware of that. So this was held in the women's court of the temple. They had four uh, menorahs or lamps, 75 feet tall. They were filled with oil, olive oil. The wicks were made out of old priestly garments, uh, the robes, you know, the linen ephods that they would wear. They would put those in the lamps. They would light those things up, the illumination of the temple. And, and, and this would, we're told, it would illuminate the entire city. And, and of course, these, these lights would remind the children of Israel. What would they remind the children of? They would remind the children of Israel that when their forefathers were in the wilderness, the Lord led them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. So it was a time to remember. Guys, I think it's worth noting that John, and I've, I've, I've tried to point this out as we've been going through John's gospel, there was always a theme within a theme we're going to miss the bigger picture if we're not paying attention to the bigger picture. In John's, these last three chapters, John combined three wilderness images. The manna, John chapter 6. Remember what Jesus says? I am the manna that's come down from heaven. The water from the rock, John chapter 7. Jesus says, come to me. I am the rock. I'll satisfy your thirst, spiritual thirst. And then chapter 8, the pillar of fire. So I want to end with this. I, I, I know I, I told you I was going to be done, and I guess I'll be done at the same time I'm always done, which is late o'clock. But anyway, verse 11, Jesus said, back to verse 11, neither do I condemn you. And this is a question I want to ask. Is this true of you? Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Folks, listen. We need to get our head out of the sand. We need to really, listen, did you write the Bible? I didn't write the Bible. I believe the Bible. Why is it that Christians feel so bent on defending what God really meant when the word of God said? Because we're more concerned about what our fellow man thinks of us than what the word of God teaches. Let me give you an example. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen, he says, neither fornicators. Fornicator 
that of course that's sex outside of marriage, that would include pornography and, and other things. So he says, neither fornicators nor idolaters. I, I think a lot of people are, are, are kind of deceived on this one, the idolater, because there's a lot of Christians that are idolaters, a lot. They just think, well, I don't bow down to an image. I don't have a Buddha in my house or anything like that. But there's so many idols that Christians create. There's the idol of Jesus himself that many Christians have created. Oh, I could really, I'd really make you guys mad if I said it. But something that's so popular right now. And some of you are more in love with the Jesus that's portrayed in that particular series than the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. Be careful. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now he makes a statement. Why? To just rub our faces into it? You know, and oh, you, you wretched people. He goes on. He says, and such were some of you. This is so beautiful. This is the beauty of faith in Christ. He wasn't writing to non-believers. There's no book of the Bible that's written to non-believers. Bible is written to believers. Believing Jews, believing Christians. Bible is written to believers. And as he's addressing the church in Corinth, he says, and such were some of you. Remember how corrupt Corinth was? They had the male and female prostitutes at the temples, the many temples there in the city of Corinth. And apparently many of these men and women were coming to faith in Christ. And they were changed. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. And you were sanctified, it means to set apart as holy. And you were justified, it means to be declared righteous. And this is how were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. You know, what we were doesn't matter as long as we have placed our faith in Christ. We are truly new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old things are behind us. They're in the past. See, you know, we... we <laughs> We go to a church and there's an altar call and, and, and the worship team plays, you know, come just as you are. And we sing and people come forward and it's beautiful. It's an invitation and, and it's not false advertisement. It's true. Come as you are. But the reality is once you've come to him, you don't stay as you were. Your life is transformed. Your life is changed. You're not the same person. You have the spirit of the living God within you. A verse I, I've come back to, I don't know if I've come back to it every chapter that we've studied thus far, but I know that I keep repeating this because I think it's a key verse in John's gospel account. Worship team, come on up, please. And it's John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Have you believed in him? Have you placed your faith in him? Are you believing in him? If you are, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. So maybe the question you should ask yourself, 
maybe the question that those scribes and Pharisees asked themselves as they were standing there bringing accusations against this woman caught in the very act of adultery. What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? I'm out of here. And maybe for some, that's a question we need to ask. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Why am I living as if I was not washed, not sanctified, not justified, as if I'm not a new creature in Christ Jesus? Why? We need to be people of the word. We need to be people who are living for him. You know, I, I think it's a shame that because, because of this kind of, uh, you know, there's biblically, biblical grace, God's unmerited favor. I can't merit it. I'll never earn it. I receive it. It's not based upon anything I've done. It's based upon what Christ has done, but I am resting in him. I am trusting in him. That's biblical grace. But then there's this strange, perverse version of grace among many Christians. And it's this way. I could be an adulterer because I'm in Christ. I could be a homosexual because I'm in Christ. I could be a thief because I'm in Christ. I could covet because I'm in I mean, that doesn't even make sense at all. It's not that we could continue living the life of sin and debauchery and have faith in Christ and it's okay because we've been washed and, and it doesn't matter, you know, because everybody sins and, and, and the Lord just kind of winks at sin. No, 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 no. It's I've been changed. I've been transformed. I've been transferred from darkness into life. I was dead in my sin. Now I'm alive in Christ Jesus. So let's stand together, please. Mm -hmm.